0: So today is the 19th of February, 2018. It's a Monday. In today's talk, I'm going to talk about that the Buddha's teaching in general, and more specifically the metta meditation, is a practice we need to engage in. We need to put it into practice And then we look at our best friend. And towards the end, I'm going to talk about the teachings under the aspect of rewiring the neuronal pathways. So as we know, metta is a universal quality that can not only be found in humans, but also in animals and other living beings. And during the first retreat, Sayadaw mentioned this, this story, an example of a dog who saved a cat who had fallen into a hole. So the dog full of meta for this cat and really was very inventive to get the cat out of the hole. And also this mind's and heart's quality of loving-kindness or friendliness or respect, this is not limited to Buddhists. It's not a Buddhist quality, far from it. So metta, loving-kindness, is a universal quality that can be found wherever there are living beings. And it's a quality that shines through in a purified heart and mind. Then metta radiates naturally. When the defilements are absent, then it just radiates. It shines from the heart, from the mind. It was in 1931 that Mahatma Gandhi wrote, whether mankind will consciously follow the law of love, I do not know, but that need not perturb us. The law will work just as the law of gravitation will work whether we accept it or not. And just as a scientist will work wonders out of various applications of the laws of nature, even though so, a man who applies the law of love with scientific precision can work great wonders. So Gandhi used the words, a man or whoever applies the law of love with scientific precision can work great wonders. Expressed in different words, we would say a person who applies the practice of metta meditation sincerely and diligently can work great wonders. And as Sayado, Ayaviranyani, and myself have said on various occasions, the power of Metta really works wonders. And it can manifest in so many ways sometimes really amazing, sometimes surprising, sometimes completely. Unexpected. So here is a little example, a little meta story, which illustrates the surprising or unexpected power of meta. And I found this little story in a book written by Ma Tanegi. She is a Burmese writer and she herself had spent a number of years in prison. So she had written, in 2004, many military intelligence personnel were arrested on corruption charges. One MI officer, military intelligence officer, who had previously arrested a number of political prisoners, he was sent to jail himself in Mandalay. And there, in that jail, um, there were some of the victims he had sent to jail. And this MI officer, expecting them to take revenge, he went in trembling with terror But to his surprise and relief, these other prisoners comforted him. They gave him food and they taught him how to meditate. I heard he burst into tears at their welcome. He is now meditating diligently and in turn, he is forgiving of his captors. And Mata Negi, she had also written a book about her time in jail. And to my big surprise, I had to learn that all the prisoners, well, she was in the women's ward, all the women, uh, she was there in that um, quarter in the jail. There was so much solidarity among the prisoners. You know, some of them were allowed to receive food parcels from their family. And whoever got some food parcel, then they would share it with everybody else. So after having eaten the drab prison food, they would come and sit together and then take out their lapé and their cakes and their mo, whatever, sharing it with each other. The Buddha had said that everything springs from the mind, or saying everything is mind made. And there are these two famous verses in the Dhammapada, the verses number one and two. They go like this All states of being are determined by mind. It is mind that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoofprint of the animal that draws it, so suffering will surely follow when we speak or act impulsively from an impure state of mind. All states of being are determined by mind. It is mind that leads the way, as surely as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being will follow with a pure state of mind. And we know that a mind, a heart and mind full of metta, full of pure metta, that's a pure state of mind. And so when our heart and mind are full of metta, it's for sure that well-being, happiness, peacefulness will follow. So because all actions of body and speech start in the heart, in the mind, we need to make this benevolent, friendly, and kind, mind base really strong. So we must develop metta to such a degree that it becomes really powerful, that it becomes unwavering, and that it becomes deeply rooted in our heart and mind. And of course, this takes a lot of time, And it takes so much time because the old habits are so strong. And these old habitual patterns are so quick to arise. For example, we are bothered by a mosquito and already in the next moment we go (laughs) Habitual reaction. (laughs) And so know it's the dosa aversion ill will that comes up and manifests as this bodily action or in a retreat we might see another yogi at our place in the dining hall and immediately oh, irritation and annoyance comes up again a manifestation of dosa, or else we might see another yogi with a very nice fleece jacket and immediately the thought pops up, let's see if I can find such a nice fleece jacket when I go home. Loba wanting, desire. So to undo these habitual reactions and thought patterns, this takes a lot of time. It also takes a lot of effort and a lot of patience and perseverance. But change is possible, there is no doubt, because otherwise this practice meditation practice would not make sense. So if change were not possible, why to come here and spend all this time here? Waste your time here, except of eating good food. (laughs) But for the change to happen, we must practice. We must engage with the teachings and we must follow the advice given by the teachers, the advice given by the Buddha. A nun who lived at the time of the Buddha, her name was Patachara, she expressed it so briefly and beautifully. She said, engage with the Buddha's teaching, One who does so has no regrets. And she herself, Patachara, had really to encounter um, great hardships. Within a very short time span, her husband died, then her two little children, then her parents and her siblings. So she was left all to herself. And you must know in ancient Indian society, a widowed woman having no family, that was not a nice state to be in. Anyway, her grief was so strong, she actually went mad, became crazy. But she was lucky enough to encounter the Buddha, and the Buddha realizing her state gave a suitable teaching to her. She regained her sanity, became a nun, and became an arahant. So she knew, yes, engaging in the Buddha's teachings is beneficial, and she had no regrets. So, Patachara's encouragement engage with the teachings. In other words, practice it, do it. This is really so important, and it cannot be stressed enough that we must put the Buddha's teaching into practice. We must really engage with this teaching. The Buddha's teaching is not just a very nice and sophisticated teaching or it's not another philosophy that promises the freedom from suffering and the state of complete liberation. And also the Buddha's teaching It's not something to simply read or study, or it's not something to simply think about it. Even if one had studied all the Buddhist texts, and even if one had memorized all these texts, this would not yet be enough. This would not yet lead to liberation. In the year 2000, I was attending a Buddhist conference in Lumbini, the birthplace of the Buddha in Nepal. And there, a nun from Bhutan used the following analogy. She said, let's say that the person has studied the Buddha's teaching even to the degree of getting a PhD in Buddhist philosophy. However, if this person does not actually engage in the practice of the Buddha's teaching, then this person is like a donkey that carries the whole Buddhist scriptures on its back. We know that the Buddha gave many different teachings, many instructions to many uh, people, different kind of people. And And his teachings, his instructions were always given with the intention that his listeners then could apply these teachings in their life. So the Buddha did not consider himself a philosopher or an intellectual, but he regarded himself rather than a physician, a physician with the sole motivation to heal people and to guide them to a state of profound well-being, which of course, than means complete liberation. And his approach was always very pragmatic. His teachings, his advice, his instructions, they were always tailored to the needs of the people he was talking to, whether they were lay people or monastics. Here are a couple of examples. So for example, to a person uh, with with lots of desire and lust, then the Buddha would advise this person to practice the asubha meditation. When one engages in asubha meditation, then one reflects on the non-beauty of the body on the fact that all these different parts which constitute the body, that they are not inherently nice or attractive or beautiful. All these different parts of the body are subject to change, subject to decay. And so in this way, then, Desire, lust, or attachment to the body can be reduced and finally uh, be overcome. Or to a person with a lot of uh, aversion, hatred, ill will, then the Buddha would advise that person to engage in metta meditation. So by strengthening the quality of metta, which is the opposite of dosa, aversion and so on. So then by strengthening the metta, the opposite, the dosa will weaken and less frequently arise. And with the development of loving kindness of metta, then this wholesome attitude, Uh, will become stronger and so the habitual reactions of aversion will become weaker, arise less frequently. Or another example, for monastics, the Buddha laid down the rule of celibacy. But for lay people, however, he laid out the rule or the precept of um, abstaining from sexual misconduct. So the Buddha took always into consideration the circumstances of the people. He always took into consideration the characters uh, of the people. So it was never a one instruction for all. A skilled teacher of our era was <clears throat> Achan Cha. Well, he passed away 26 years ago. He was a very well known teacher in Thailand in the Thai forest tradition. And many foreigners went to his monastery in the northeast of Thailand and practiced under the guidance of Achan Cha. And many of these foreigners, they ordained as monks. And one of these monks was Achan Sumedo, And it was him who later established the Amaravati Monastery in England. And then from there, many branch monasteries were established in Western countries, in countries like New Zealand or Switzerland or Italy. So anyway, Anchan Cha was well known to teach each student individually. And for this, some people reproached him that he was not constant in his teachings. They reproached him that he would say one thing to one person and then another thing, the opposite, to another person. And so then Ajahn Chah explained. He said, <clears throat> imagine a person is walking on the crest of a mountain. The path is very narrow and the slope on both sides of the path is very steep. There is, a, uh, there is a thick fog, and the person does not see very much. Now, when I notice that the person is walking too much to the right and about to fall down the steep slope, I tell the person to steer more to the left. And when I notice that the person is walking too much to the left and about to fall down the steep slope, I tell the person to steer more to the right. Of course, it's very fortunate to have a teacher who knows exactly what is most beneficial for one's practice. So anyway, let's now, go, let's now go back to the Buddha. As I said before, the Buddha taught and advised people, monastics, lay people, so that they could apply the teaching and that they could apply the teaching, the advice in their life. And if one really puts the instruction or the advice into practice then over time one can notice change. So if one really engages with the Buddha's teaching this yields tangible results and then as Venerable Patachara has said, one who does so has no regrets. In 2009, I helped facilitate a meta study at the University in Zurich, in Switzerland. And this study wanted to show that loving kindness, meta, makes a person a socially more active person, or that a person with meta is more inclined to help others or to assist others and to show that the person with metta is less selfish and less competitive. So in other words, to show that the person with metta is more concerned with with the welfare of others than with one's own welfare. So my part in that study was to teach a group of people how to practice metta meditation. And there was another group and they simply did a memory training. So the group who had to practice metta meditation, first they had a full day with me and I taught them how to practice metta in the sitting in walking, and I basically taught them in the same systematic way that you have been instructed during this retreat. Of course, it was more condensed. And then after this day long, they had two weeks for practicing at home in the day-to-day life. And they were asked to practice formally, but also to practice informally throughout the day. So to cultivate loving kindness whenever they remembered. And then after these two weeks, they had get, they had again a full day of metta meditation with me. And in the morning, I started with Around where they could tell about their experiences of uh, cultivating the metta, and one woman said it so um, so much to the point, very short and to the point. She had really understood the gist of the practice. She said, wishing others happiness and well-being makes me so happy. (laughs) And this person, she was not a Buddhist. Actually, she was just a student who participated in this study because all the participants got a little bit of money. But she simply put the instructions into practice and she experienced a result that was very surprising for her. The outcome of the study kind of proved the assumption. So the people from the meta group were more inclined to help others than the people from the memory training group. And what is interesting is that this tangible result happened already after a rather short period of practice. So if one is more concerned with helping others than just selfishly working towards one's own selfish benefits, yes, this leads to greater harmony, to less quarrels in communities. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is your best friend who comes to mind? And I can imagine that that your mind has been going out to another person, to a person who is very dear to you, or a person to whom you feel very close or a person you really trust and value, or to a person in whose company you feel really happy and safe. But is there anyone among you whose best friend is herself or himself? Godwin Samaratne was a Buddhist teacher from Sri Lanka. He passed away 18 years ago, and he had said, Meditation of loving-kindness is so important in the sense that you learn to be your own best friend. It's a simple statement, and yes, It's so true. You know, if we can be our best friend, then we will have good company all the time. And then we are happy to have such a good friend. Then we feel at ease with ourselves. And then we can accept ourselves just the way we are. Then we feel held and understood. Then we do not need to feel unworthy. We do not have a low self-esteem. And then we feel secure because we fully trust our good friend. And with ourselves as the best friend, we can be really anchored in ourselves then we can firmly stand on the ground and we are not shaken by whatever circumstances there are. And also with us as our best friend, then we are not dependent of what others think of us. So, you know, how many people are their own best friend? In the West, in Western countries, it seems that there are so many people who suffer from low self-esteem, who suffer from unworthiness, who suffer from self-denigration, or people who hate themselves. A number of years ago, there was a conference of Western Dhamma teachers with the Dalai Lama. And then one of the Western Dhamma teachers talked about the fact that many people in the West have low self-esteem, that many people hate themselves, that many people in the West feel unworthy. And this was translated to the Dalai Lama. And he seemed a bit confused about what he heard. And so what followed was a going back and forth between the translator and the Dalai Lama. It seemed like the Dalai Lama could not understand the fact that people could have low self-esteem, or that they could even hate themselves. This was such a foreign concept to him because in his culture, the Tibetan culture, this simply did not happen, or maybe just very rarely. So to be your own best friend means that we have a kind and friendly relationship with ourselves. A relationship that is based on respect, on kindness, on acceptance, and open-heartedness. A German meditator who had attended several retreats that I led in Germany, and who then came also to Burma and spent one month practicing meditation at the Chamyayeta Meditation Center in Mobi, north of Yangon. She um, told me after one of her retreats Um, they also included metta meditation. So she wrote, metta meditation has become a loyal friend whenever I walk, whenever I go somewhere. She, my friend, metta, is always present when I go somewhere by myself. She is never offended, even if I put her aside or if I do not pay attention to her. However, whenever I call her, she comes. I never thought that one day I would be able to always have this friend with me. So, change is possible. (laughs) And we know that a truly open and loving heart knows no boundaries. And metta does not ask for conditions or circumstances to be different from what they are right now. And also we ourselves do not need to be different from the way we are right now. So we do not need to be more generous or more patient, or to be better meditators, to be worthy of this unconditional love or metta. So as you know, at the heart of the metta meditation practice is the transformation of our heart and mind. The transformation of our basic attitude to ourselves and others. And one beneficial outcome of this practice is that we become our own best friend. And so then, with this own best friend, ourselves, there is this relationship filled with kindness, friendliness, respect, and acceptance. Sharon Salzberg is an American meditation teacher. She has also written some books on the practice of Metta, and she herself has practiced Metta also under the guidance of Sayadaw Upandita. So after an intensive practice with him, she went back home and then she dropped the plate. And the first thought that popped up was, damn, you're such a failure. You're worthless, useless. And this was the habitual reaction grounded in, in the very low self-esteem that she had had for many years when she was young. But then, immediately after this first thought had come up, another thought popped up, a complete surprise for Sharon. It was the thought, but I love you anyway. (laughs) So through her intensive practice of metta meditation, she had been rewiring her mind. We can also see this practice of metta meditation as setting up uh, another default setting, a default setting that that is much more beneficial and helpful. Or we also can talk about this practice as a deconditioning of unskillful reactions or as a conditioning of skillful reactions. So instead of falling into our negative and harmful habitual reactions, we train our heart and mind to react in a positive, in a beneficial way. And it's a little bit, or we can compare it um, to going to the gym where we strengthen our muscles. And so here in the meta training gym, we strengthen our meta muscles in the heart and mind. Brain researchers say that each repetition of a certain thought, each repetition of a certain reaction makes the grooves in the brain deeper. And so this means that the neuronal pathways in the brain are strengthened. And with that, the likelihood of falling again into the same thought or reaction increases. And this is a vicious circle. The more this happens, the more we fall into this negative, unskillful, Uh, habitual patterns, the stronger this pattern will become. And as a result, it becomes more and more difficult to get out of these deeply ingrained habitual reactions. And what the brain researchers have found out, this is something that the Buddha had also found out without any expensive machines or tests. At one time the Buddha said to a group of monks, but, you know, this is for us, for everybody. So he said to the monks, whatever a bhikkhu, a monk, or a person, whatever a bhikkhu frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of his mind. The inclination of the mind means a habitual um, pattern, a habitual response. And so, a remedy for These habitual patterns, to get out of unskillful habitual patterns, is serious training. But of course, first of all, we need to recognize these patterns. For example, in the metta meditation practice, as we try to cultivate loving-kindness, we notice such a habitual pattern in the moment we notice that the mind has gone off, thinking about something else, or when we notice that irritation has arisen in the mind, or anger, or wanting, desire. But then, in the course of the metta meditation practice, having noticed uh, a thought, a habitual reaction, we simply let go of that and bring the mind back to the metta. In the case of Vipassana meditation, then we would bring our attention to this thought or to the mind state of aversion or desire, and be aware of that state as it is. In that moment, being aware of that mind state, of that reaction, in order to understand the nature of these uh, mind states. So the first step is to recognize these habitual patterns. And then the second step is to engage in a serious training and with the meta meditation practice, we can see this practice as a serious training to rewire the neuronal pathways. So, to weaken the unskillful reactions and to strengthen the skillful, the meta reaction. So, to make the meta grooves deeper in the mind. So within the Buddha's teaching, there are different ways of rewiring the neuronal pathways in skillful ways. Metta meditation is one practice, or there are the other Brahma-viharas. And of course, there are also non-Buddhist practices that aim at rewiring the neuronal pathways. Some of you are already quite aware that the end of the retreat is getting nearer. And this manifests in thoughts about what to do after the retreat or the time out of retreat. And some of you have already asked in the individual interviews of how to practice metta in day-to-day life or how to continue one's practice at home. So during the closing ceremony in the morning of the last day, more will be said in regard to how to continue one's practice. Here, I just um, want to mention the basic principle of practicing or engaging with the Buddha's teaching. We must understand that the Buddha's teaching does not only consist of formal meditation practice, but the teaching includes many more aspects of our life. Basically, it includes all aspects of life. For example, there is the aspect of dana, of practicing generosity, or the aspect of sila, virtue, virtuous conduct. The Pali word bhavana is usually translated as meditation, as in metta bhavana, metta meditation, meditation on loving kindness. So many people understand bhavana meditation simply as the formal meditation practice, either the formal practice of sitting on the cushion at home or the formal practice during a retreat. But bhavana actually means cultivation or development or literally causing to be. So it's the cultivation, the development of wholesome mental states that are essential for a happy and peaceful life, as well as is being essential for liberating wisdom. So we need to understand that the heart and mind can and must be developed and cultivated outside of formal meditation practice too. So, for example, you know, the practices of Vipassana meditation and the practice of Metta meditation, they also can be applied in day-to-day life. You know, it's not the same intensive way that we practice, but the principle of Vipassana meditation can be integrated into one's life by being mindful of whatever one is doing. So to be mindful of one's activities or to be mindful of one's emotions that arise or else the principle of metta meditation can be of cultivating kindness, friendliness throughout the day, trying to cultivate metta through our actions of body or kind and gentle speech. So let's say, you have decided to cultivate metta, loving kindness, as much as possible during the day in your regular um, uh, life at home. So then, for example, in the morning when you get up, you can cultivate metta when you get dressed, when you take a shower, when you prepare your breakfast, when you eat. Your breakfast. You know, instead of getting lost in just trivial thoughts or in worries about the meeting that you're going to have with your boss, so you s- simply try to focus your mind on metta, on cultivating loving and kind thoughts. And the better you have trained yourself here in the retreat, to maintain the meta in these general activities, then the better you will be able to do it at home in your day-to-day lives. Or whenever you have to wait somewhere, wait at the red traffic light, or wait for the doctor's appointment, or queuing up in the supermarket, Then you can cultivate metta to the people around you, um, to the doctor, to the person at the checkout counter, to yourself, to your family, whoever. But again, instead of being lost in thoughts or worries or fantasies, you can spend these few moments, these few minutes um, in cultivating loving and kind thoughts or when you cook a meal, you can cultivate metta. Be it for all living beings, be it for your family for whom you cook the meal, or it could be cultivating metta for all the beings who have in any way contributed um, to this food that you are using and cooking. Or even while you're sitting on the toilet, cultivate a few moments of metta. So in this way, you can integrate the practice, the practice of metta in your day-to-day life. Or your life with all its different aspects becomes the field of your practice. Whenever you remember, you can engage in the teaching. And practicing metta, for example, throughout the day, whenever uh, you remember, I call this freestyle metta. So whoever comes up in your mind, you know, metta for this person, metta for all beings, metta, yeah, freestyle. But, you know, what is important to, to cultivate these loving, kind, and friendly thoughts. And with this, making the grooves deeper in your brain, in your heart and mind. And so, you know, please experiment in your day-to-day life and, um, you know, play with the practice in your life. And always remember that to practice, whether formally or um, in day-to-day life informally, it should be something joyful, something that you makes happy. You know, it should not be something you have to integrate into the day as well, you know, jam into your already tight schedule so that you can tick it off at the end of the day. Here comes another uh, example of how this practice is uh, a training of the heart and the mind or rewiring the um, habitual reactions. It's an example of Pema Chodron. She is an American nun ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And she is the founder and teacher of Gampo Abbey in Nova Scotia. And this is or was the first Tibetan monastery in North America for Westerners. So during her uh, practice, practice of meditation, she once approached her teacher, Drangu Rinpoche, how she should work with her anger towards her mother. She was one of these people having difficulties with her mother, really having strong anger towards her mother. And so the teacher uh, said to her that she should spend two weeks in which, during which she should resent her mother and bring up all these feelings of ill will and anger towards her mother. But the teacher told her that she should be aware of how that felt for her. And then he said, after these two weeks, for another two weeks, she should try to remember any kindness that the mother showed her as a child. Even if it was just a moment of kindness or just a little kind thing. So to trying to remember that for two weeks. And the teacher also said, but be aware how this feels. And then the teacher said, after the four weeks, she could make up her mind which attitude she wanted to cultivate for the rest of her life. Of course, it's all so clear. <laughs> so whatever we cultivate and whatever we repeatedly do, this becomes a habit. Or, as the Buddha had said, this becomes the inclination of the mind. And so when we are able to differentiate the wholesome from the unwholesome, then we have the choice to decide, or we have the choice to incline the mind to the wholesome as much as possible. So cultivating what is wholesome, And we know, metta is something wholesome, generosity is something wholesome. So are patience, faith, mindfulness, or virtue. So cultivating what is wholesome is like making the grooves in the mind, in the brain, deeper and wider. And so whether we call it meditation or cultivation of the good or rewiring the brain or strengthening new wholesome habits, in any case, we have to engage in this work. We have to do it ourselves. We cannot delegate this work to somebody else. So, I want to close with the words of Patachara Engage with the Buddha's teaching. One who does so has no regrets. I thank you for your kind attention.